This is the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us today, and we hope that as you set aside this time for God, that He will help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Why did you choose to get out of bed this morning? Was it because the alarm clock went off? How many times did you hit the snooze button? Why are you wearing the outfit that you're wearing right now? Are you trying to impress someone? Are you trying to be comfortable? Are you dressing for the job because that's what's expected of you? These seem like pretty simple questions, but evaluating our motives becomes a very powerful tool that we can use to evaluate why it is that we think the way we do. What we find is that when we evaluate our motives, there's often much more hidden beneath the surface than we previously realized. Why do we wake up this morning? We might just think, well, it's time to go to work, or I wanted to eat breakfast. But as we follow the chain of events and ask why, why do we do the things that we do, we get to the heart of what truly motivates us. And while most of our actions are completely innocuous, sometimes our motives are led by sinful desires. We dress the way that we do because we want to be liked. We want to impress that person. We eat not out of a desire of hunger, but because we're bored. We want to satiate some unmet need in our lives. And so evaluating our motives can really help us understand why it is that we're pursuing the pleasures and the lifestyle that we're pursuing. And that's where part two of Josh's sermon is going to end up, on how we get to the end of ourselves. Part of that is we have to evaluate what motivates us so that we can properly understand how we're walking with Christ. If you've found the end of yourself before, I want to challenge you to lean into that place of weakness. There's more freedom and grace there with Christ than you could ever dream of anywhere else. And so, even though it's painful, lean into it. For both groups, though, there are three steps you need to take. And I would argue that you need to take these three steps on a daily basis to live the life that Jesus taught us to live. First, reflect on your motives. The Pharisee apparently did this, but I think he took a bird's eye view of what was going on in his life and he didn't really dig very deep. He thought he understood himself, but in reality he didn't. The whole purpose of the public worship service in the temple was to reflect on the things going inside the community that were contrary to God's righteousness and to call on God for forgiveness. This Pharisee, on the other hand, though, stands by himself. The Greek phrasing here kind of makes it seem like he made a little clearing around him, so imagine a huge crowd gathered together and he kind of pushes everyone aside and gets a little personal space for himself to kind of be in the spotlight. And it's in the middle of that spotlight, in the middle of the most important part of the daily atonement service, that he prays a prayer recounting the things in him that were in his mind moving him closer to God. I'm so glad I'm not like that other guy. I do all these great things. And he missed the point of the service that he was attending. To find the end of yourself, you need to take a painful step that the Pharisee didn't take that day. You need to reflect on your motives. 
and dig deep beneath the surface facades that we all put up to protect ourselves. We're all motivated by something. Even our smallest actions have motives. For example, uh, sometimes on weekends, while my wife graciously watches the kids, I like to come up to the quiet of my office here at Global and work on other things. But the decision to leave my house and come to the office is usually motivated by a lot of little desires along the way. First, and if you're aware of the project that we've been working on, I feel stressed. If I'm honest with myself, I've pushed too hard during the past six months. My wife claims 18 months and she's probably more right than I am. So when I wake up in the morning on a weekend to boys screaming, a messy house, and the inability to even focus on deciding on what sounds good for lunch, I'm pretty motivated to leave sometimes. Secondly, I'm selfish. There are times as a husband and father when you want to work on a project quietly without interruption while the kids play quietly somewhere else. When this doesn't happen, I'm filled with a few feelings, typically frustration, and a desire to blame my wife for not controlling the chaos for some irrational reason. Now, it may be enough to recognize the desire to blame my wife as, simple, uh, as sinful, but I want to dig a little deeper at this point. If I ask myself why I'm frustrated, I find it comes from being selfish because I didn't get what I wanted. When I ask myself why I want to blame my wife, it's typically because I believe I have the ultimate power of knowing exactly what to do in every situation. When my wife handles the kids brilliantly, but they still manage to scream, I'm motivated to fight to ensure that she knows that I'm better than she is, and that if she wants to be better, she'll listen to what I have to say. It's a desire to be qualified as good enough, in and of myself, by my own merit. I'm really saying I'm old enough, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, just like a little boy trying to find significance in life. And that somehow means that God will treat me like I'm good enough. Again, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, how many of my good actions were done for the right motive? How many for fear of public opinion or a desire to show off? How many from a sort of obstinacy or sense of superiority, which in different circumstances might equally have led to some very bad act? But I cannot, by direct moral effort, give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. So the next time you make a decision today, I want you to take a few minutes and analyze the motives and desires that drove you to make that decision. Even something like choosing where to eat lunch can be motivated by a sinful heart. If you choose to eat out for lunch instead of eating the lunch that you made or brought, ask yourself why you made that choice. If it was for convenience, why are you looking for convenience? Is it because you want more time to do something else? Why do you want to do that other thing? If it was because it sounded good, are you trying to make yourself feel better for becoming, uh, because something is causing you stress or frustration? And again, it's not that eating out is sinful. It's about digging in and understanding why you're motivated to do the things that you do in life. And this isn't a pleasant thing to do. When you do it, you see the ugliness of your soul. You see how broken and in need of God's grace you really are. In, the short, in short, the deeper you dig, the closer you get to finding the end of yourself. And there you find you have nothing left. 
that winter in Iowa, God took me far away from home and the classrooms I spent so much time in over the previous seven years. And when he did that, and as I worked myself beyond what I was capable of, my entire world came crashing down. And it was in that moment that God began to uncover my motives in all of this. When this happens, as you reflect on your motives and desires, you're faced with a decision. Do you cover your desires back up, or do you take the second step and humble yourself before God? In the middle of this morning service at the temple, we also find a tax collector, but unlike the Pharisee, he stands at a distance, maybe over in a corner of the courtyard, where he beats his chest without even looking up into heaven. This wasn't something people did when they were just a little sad. This is a sign of someone who's at the end of himself. Greek has a word for mercy uh, called eliao, but that's not the word that the tax collector uses here that most translations translate as mercy. <clears throat> Instead, he uses hilastetai, a word whose noun form is used to describe the mercy that comes from a work of atonement. So in the middle of the atonement service, with the cymbal crashing and the priest carrying the incense of the coals and the uh, sacrifice from the altar into the holy place, this tax collector, knowing full well his own brokenness and sinfulness, beats his chest in anguish and prays, God, I know how messed up my motives and desires are. Let this atoning mercy cover me too. As I reached the end of myself in Iowa that winter, there were several times I would bundle up for a walk in the 10 below weather at night and the 10-inch snow. And it wasn't actually uh, until after I moved back to Springfield that Alicia told me that she always was afraid that I would never come back on one of those walks. It took three months of depression and anxiety like this to lead me to a point where I finally told God I didn't know what was happening but that I needed his help to understand it all. It wasn't nearly the great prayer of humility that we see the tax collector praying here, but it was my first feeble attempt to give up control. About a year later, I saw on Facebook that one of my former professors was leading a ministry called Journey Pastoral Coaching. It's a relational coaching ministry for millennials, supported by private donations, and it's offered free of charge to those who participate in it. So I jumped all in. And through walking with Pastor Alan Baker, a few close friends like Chris, and most importantly, my wife, I started the process of uncovering my desires, my motives, and my brokenness so that I could lay them down at the feet of Jesus. And it's this same place we see so many people throughout the Gospels reach when Jesus steps into their lives and offers them grace. And that's exactly what I found in that place of darkness as I walked with my friends toward Jesus. When you honestly reflect on your motives and then humble yourself before God, you're ready to take the third step and rest in God's grace. But this one can also be one of the toughest of the three steps. See, when you reflect on your motives and humble yourself before God, you'll find yourself face to face with grace. That just happens. And it's in that place of humility that Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. It's in that place where Jesus said the tax collector went away in right standing with God. When we look at this story, we don't get a lot, of, uh, a lot of information after the public service ends and the two men leave the temple. But we do know 
that a man like the Pharisee would not have been one to rest in God's grace. His constant work to assure that he was always doing the right things demonstrates that. We also know that the tax collector, who had found the end of himself and humbled himself before God, found the only hope for his brokenness. Grace does the same thing for you. Your struggle against your sin isn't a requirement for your justification before God. It's freedom knowing that every sin and broken thing is taken care of by the cross that drives you to Jesus. And when you stay close to him, drinking in the sweet grace of our Lord Jesus, you start to become like him. This third step of resting in grace has really been one of the most challenging for me personally. The, the tendency that I was raised with, not intentionally by my parents, I don't blame them or hold anything against them, but the tendency that I in, inherently came to understand as a kid to perform was so in, is so in, deeply ingrained in my being that I, I'm becoming fairly confident that the process of completely removing that may take a lifetime. I don't tell you my story of coming to the end of myself or of humbling myself before God to show you that I have this all figured out. This grace thing is real, real tough for me sometimes still. I tell you because my story demonstrates what I'm finding to be true of every Christian. We fight a daily struggle to die to ourselves and rely on God's grace and humility. We do it in the way we work in our ministries. We do it in the way we report our numbers to our supporters when things aren't going well. We do it in the way we burn out in ministry at the expense of our family and our physical health. And we do it when we make little compromises in our decisions that are motivated by our sin. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning describes disciples of Jesus like this. What makes authentic disciples is not visions, ecstasies, biblical mastery of chapter and verse, or spectacular success in ministry, but a capacity for faithfulness. Buffeted by the fickle winds of failure, battered by their own unruly emotions, and bruised by rejection and ridicule, authentic disciples may have stumbled and frequently fallen, endured lapses and relapses, gotten handcuffed to flesh pots, and wandered into a far country. Yet they kept coming back to Jesus. After life has lined their faces a little, many followers of Jesus come into a coherent sense of themselves for the first time when they modestly claim, I'm still a ragamuffin, but I'm different. They are right. Where sin abounded, grace has more abounded. The struggle to rest in God's grace doesn't seem to be something that you can be taught. It seems to be something that you have to experience and learn for yourself as you spend time with Jesus. And to do that, I can really only point to the first two steps. On a daily basis, reflect on your motives and on your behavior. Not so that you can wallow in a self-pity party, but so that it drives you to a place of utter dependence on God's atoning mercy and grace. And do it in the company of a few close friends who can walk with you reminding you of God's grace when you can't see anything but your own weaknesses. The more you take these two steps and have opportunity to encounter God's grace every day, the easier it will become to rest in that grace. This call to rest is so challenging for us in ministry because there's always something to do next. 
But as Brennan Manning puts it, the danger with our good works, spiritual investments, and all the rest of it is that we can construct a picture of ourselves in which we situate our self-worth. Complacency, then, replaces sheer delight in God's unconditional love. So my story in a nutshell is this. Growing up, I thought the Christian life was simple. Then sin taught me that it was more complicated. Now grace is teaching me that it's simpler than I can ever imagine. The Christian life is a life battered and broken as we follow Jesus to the cross where we die to ourselves. And we must die there on a daily basis, sometimes twice daily if necessary. There's no other way to follow Jesus. Yes, there is peace, joy, freedom, and love, but those blessings come from a life that reflects on its motives and behaviors, humbles itself before God, and rests in the grace that he so freely provides. Taking these three steps on a daily basis will lead you on a journey of knowing God better and becoming more like him every day. This is what it's like to live life in the kingdom of God and to seek his righteousness rather than your own. And when you do this, all the other stuff in life, all the other stuff in your family, all the other stuff in your ministry will be added to you as well. So take time today to reflect on your motives. And when you see brokenness, humble yourself before God. And then rest in the sweet, sweet, atoning mercy and grace that Jesus offers. I would like to challenge you today to keep a mental checklist of the different activities, the different decisions that you make throughout the day, and journal about that this evening. You don't have to journal long and write a whole lot. Maybe just simply write a bullet-pointed list of all the different decisions that you've made throughout the day that you can think of, big and small, doesn't matter. And then take a few moments and write out under each one of those, what was your motive? Why did you make the decision that you did? And see if you can go three whys deep on each. Ask yourself why three times. And see if you can get to the bottom of what you were really thinking, what really motivated your actions. And this isn't an exercise to condemn yourself or to make yourself feel bad about anything. It's an exercise to get us to be mindful of what the Lord is doing in our lives and why it is that we take the actions that we do. Because once we better understand why we do what we do, we can better position ourselves to make decisions and take actions that are pleasing to Christ, that glorify him, that spread this gospel message that we're so passionate about. So as you build a lifestyle of discipleship today, I would challenge you, evaluate your motives because they hold so much potential for helping us learn to live a life of daily growth. Thanks for listening to the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening at Daily Growth, Go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. Or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.